I'll start with the question, what is history for? Now, there are many reasons why we study the past, and mainly, actually, just because we enjoy it. But perhaps the most important reason is that it helps us to understand our present situation and how the things we think of as normal developed out of very different pasts. Only by appreciating how present reality came into existence, came to be constituted, can we decide how to act in the present and what we need to do to maintain things as they are or to change them in the future. Now, there are many forms of history, political, social, economic, cultural, and I, as you just heard, am a landscape historian. Landscape history as a subject was first developed in the 1950s by social and economic historians, such as Maurice Beresford, and in particular, W.G. Hoskins, whose great book, Making the English Landscape, is illustrated up there. They sought to explain aspects of the physical environment, the layout of villages, the shapes of fields, the varying chronologies of vernacular buildings in different areas in terms of historical processes. But they also sought to use the physical environment to contribute to wider debates in social and economic history. Such things as hedges, field patterns and settlement morphologies could be regarded as a kind of continuous above-ground archaeology. In Hoskins' words, the landscape was itself, and I quote, the richest historical record we possess. Now, the subject developed through the later 20th century in new ways. Firstly, real field archaeologists began to be involved. People like the great Christopher Taylor, who's, well, I don't know if it's his best book, but it's my favourite book, is illustrated in the middle of it. Anyone who doesn't know that book, it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, the earthworks of abandoned sections of villages were now interpreted alongside their surviving upstanding portions. Aerial photography and other non-invasive forms of archaeological investigation were embraced wholesale. Beresford and Hoskins had indeed used these approaches, but there was a new emphasis and rigour and a new, longer timescale, with many now suggesting that the making of the English landscape had begun well before the Roman conquest, rather than in Saxon times, as Hoskins had mainly believed. In addition, the late 70s and 80s saw the increasing involvement of historical ecologists, most notably the late Oliver Rackham. In, again, an interest in ecology was not entirely new, Max Hooper's work on how hedges could be dated uh, by the, uh, counting the number of species they contain, uh, something which I can tell you now is complete and utter tosh, uh, had been used by Hoskins. But landscape history now expanded to embrace the study of a whole range of semi-natural habitats, woods, heaths, moors, meadows, and the like. And it's such matters and such habitats that I'd like us to think about today, and as historians rather than as ecologists. Within such areas, particular forms of management practiced over long periods of time created particular suites of species. Take, for example, meadows. They were areas of low-lying grassland managed to produce a hay crop, vital as winter feed for livestock, and recordingly closed to sheep and cattle during the spring and early summer. As a result, plants intolerant of grazing and trampling could flourish, flower and set seed without disturbance. Many of them tall, bulky species like meadowsweet, globefire and oxide daisy. Over the centuries, a particular kind of management thus created a distinctive, rather beautiful, biologically diverse, but essentially unnatural environment. Heathland is another example. Heaths, as I'm sure you know, 
are largely treeless environments associated with poor acid soils overlying sands and gravels. Their vegetation features a distinctive range of dwarf shrubs, principally heather or ling, gorse or furze, and broom, together with characteristic grasses such as sheep's fescue. Such environments sustain particular kinds of fauna, reptiles like the adder, birds like the Dartford warbler. Like meadows, though, heaths are essentially artificial. Most, if not all, examples develop from woodland, often in remote antiquity, but sometimes as late as the 16th century. As trees died of old age, they were, or were barked by livestock, or were cut down for timber and wood, regeneration was prevented by grazing and by further exploitation for fuel, with gorse, broom and heather now being harvested for domestic firing. Uh, I always put this slide up and I always say this is Theresa May's new ASBO policy. This is, uh, if they uh, cause vandalism, you make them cut gorse. Um, I shouldn't say that, should I? Um, conversely, most heaths which have escaped enclosure, improvement or the attentions of the Forestry Commission have become colonised by secondary woodland during the last century or so as the intensity of management has declined. Mousehold Heath in Norwich... Shown here on Faden's map of 1797 is a great example. I don't know if you can see it, a huge tract of heathen extending northeast from the city right up to the edge of the Norfolk Broads. Now, um, it's, uh, it, it was by then a huge tract of open heather, an iconic landscape painted by John Sell Cotman and other artists of the Norwich School of Painters. But its name, Mousehold, incorporates the English term holt, a wood, and as late as the 13th century, it was largely tree-covered. Local people exercised rights to graze livestock and gather fuel, and by the 16th century, the whole 6,000 acres of it was largely treeless. Those parts of the heath lying close to Norwich survived enclosure and reclamation in the 19th century, but as management declined, they were rapidly colonised by birch oak and sycamore. When conservation bodies now attempt to clear some of this woodland to restore areas of heath, they face stiff local opposition who claim that these people are attacking nature. So what is the natural landscape of Mousehold Heath? The original grazed woodland, the heath that developed in the Middle Ages, or the regenerating woodland, or indeed none of them. Ancient woodland, real woodland if you like, is another important semi-natural habitat. By the 13th century, coppice with standard woods were absolutely standard in England. And in these, most of the trees and shrubs were cut down to a point at or near ground level on a rotation, usually between 8 and 15 years, to produce a regular crop of poles useful for fencing, tools, fuel, and a host of domestic uses. And you see a pile of poles here. You see the newly cut coppice behind and coppice awaiting cutting nearby. Relatively small numbers of trees were allowed to grow as standards, big trees, for timber, and these were usually felled at around 16 years of age or younger. Now, because the regenerating coppice would be damaged by grazing, livestock were generally excluded by banks and fences. The exclusion of stock, coupled with the recurrent cycles of light and shade resulting from coppicing, encouraged the development of distinctive ground flora, characterised by wood anemone and other so-called ancient woodland indicators. So these are intensively managed, very artificial environments which create a particular suite of species again. Now, woods are really interesting to me for a whole bundle of reasons. Survey after survey of medieval and post-medieval woodland uh, show that woods were overwhelmingly dominated by standard trees of oak. 
This species was actively planted or encouraged because it provided the best structural timber. In contrast, the primeval woodland of lowland England, before the advent of farming, had been dominated not by oak, but by small-leaved lime, Tilia cordata, which is now actually a really rare tree across most of England. The coppiced understory was and is variously constituted in these woods, but doesn't simply represent a managed version of the natural vegetation. Again, documentary research shows that the coppices were often weeded of unwanted shrub species or even extensively replanted with useful ones like ash, oak or, or, or hornbeam. This is what most woods look like now. They're kind of abandoned and outgrown. Management has ceased. I used to think of ancient woods as fragments of the original natural forests which once covered the country, islands of preservation, if you like. But I now know that they are more like factories for the production of wood and timber, which have, for the most part, become derelict. Their flora and fauna have been shaped in critical ways by this history. They have a history. Indeed, so are natural woods and, indeed, all the other semi-natural habitats that natural scientists, archaeologists and others now argue over what form precisely the landscape of England took before the adoption of farming from the 4th millennium BC. Until recently, it was widely assumed that most of northwest Europe was covered with dense woodland, but this idea has been challenged by Franz Vera and others, who suggests that grazing by wild cattle, deer and other herbivores maintained a much more open environment, perhaps resembling savanna in places. The arguments marshalled in support of and in opposition to such views need not concern us here. What is important is that the debate itself demonstrates just how far we are removed from any truly natural environment unaffected by human agency. And this is true in other important ways. Few people realise just how many of our plants and animals are introductions. We only agonise about recent ones, invasive species like Japanese knotweed or Himalayan balsam or monkjack or Chinese water deer or the grey squirrel or sicker deer or mink. Others, longer established, are just accepted as part of our native flora and fauna. An extraordinary range of species are introductions. Sycamore, sweet chestnut, the poppy, almost all the weeds you find in cereal fields. The snowdrop, even the lovely snake's head fritillary may be an early garden escapee. The house mice arrived in later prehistory. The black rat in Roman times. The brown rat in the 1720s. In 1777, Gilbert White considered a black rat killed at Sheldon in Hampshire something of a rarity. The Norway rats destroy all the indigenous ones, he said. Many alien animals were intentional introductions. The carp, the fallow deer, and my old favourite, the rabbit. Uh, it's my favourite until I see it destroying all my garden. Um, otherwise, it's my favourite because it has such an interesting history. It was once so domesticated, after it was introduced in the 12th century, that it was kept in specially constructed mounds. That's my wife, uh, who thought we were going on an interesting holiday to Dartmoor. Um, uh, and in these mounds, there were even specially constructed burrows for them to live in, fully furnished accommodation. Uh, so important were their status symbols, because they were a kind of elite monopoly, uh, that uh, 
that before the 18th century, they were sometimes incorporated into the gardens and designed landscapes laid out around the homes of the wealthy. Here, Sopwell in Hertfordshire, the main view from the house and gardens is across the rabbit warren on a 17th century map. Rabbits are interesting in all kinds of ways. They would, we've forgotten how central they were to culture, really, because they were a manorial monopoly and because lords of the manor could establish warrens on areas of common land in most circumstances, regardless of the opposition of the commoners, and because rabbits, once they escaped from the warren, which the little buggers regularly did, would gorge themselves on the crops of the peasants, they were deeply hated. Warrens and rabbits were deeply hated, and if there was a good riot going on in medieval times or early modern times, warrens are a target for the rioters. And I always think of the famous time, 1381, during the Peasants' Revolt, when the peasant army marched on St Albans in Hertfordshire, they detoured in the customary way to take in the abbot's um, rabbit warren at Colney Heath. They broke into the warren. They did what rioters always do, made a great big fry up, really, of the rabbits, cooked them all, killed them all, except for one. And that one rabbit they took with them into the marketplace at St Albans and they put it in the pillory. And I often wonder what the poor thing thought that was going on. Right. The implications of what I've said so far, put simply, is that we have had, we have a very bad habit of thinking of the countryside as natural. But there's nothing new in this. The tendency to conflate nature and the rural developed in England and elsewhere in Western Europe from the 17th century. Amongst a social elite whose lifestyle was increasingly focused on urban life and divorced from the realities of agricultural production and land management. God made the country, man made the town, Cooper's famous adage, would make little sense to the farmer at work in the fields, still less to the agricultural labourer. And we have another bad habit, that of thinking of the countryside as timeless and its various constituent elements as being older and more stable than they really are. In reality, they have a history because they are as much a part of the human world, the world studied by social and economic historians, as they are of the natural and many indigenous species have changed their habits and their habitats over time, quite dramatically. The Act for the Preservation of Great Game of 1597 allowed church wardens to pay individuals for killing a range of specified birds and animals considered to be a threat to agriculture. And Roger Lovegrove's great book, Silent Fields, uh, deals with this in some detail. It's a great read. It, it, uh, it includes examples like uh, Sherborne in Dorset, where on average 25 hedgehogs per year were slaughtered between 1662 and 1789. 3,344 of them, largely under the mistaken idea that they sucked the milk of sleeping cattle. Now, I've seen reviews of that book in which people have said how absolutely terrible these barbaric people in the past are, part, of course, of that rather unpleasant trend of making moral judgments on the past. We should make a moral judgment on ourselves. You would never find 25 hedgehogs per year to kill in that village today because we've effect we're close to making the thing extinct. The wood pigeon, somewhat surprisingly, was not on the list of animals that you could be paid for, um, for killing, which is surprising given uh, what it does to crops today, including uh, my own brassicas. This is because it was still rare, still largely confined to woods. Its numbers rose steadily from the late 17th century, for it feasted on the leaves of turnips and other roots, and to some extent on clover, new crops now growing in the fields. But let me return for a moment to semi-natural environments. 
heaths, moors, meadows, downland, woods and the like. All of these and other traditionally managed environments have been in retreat for two centuries. Enclosure, the new forms of husbandry of the agricultural revolution, industrialization and high farming, modern mechanization have all rendered most of these forms of land management rare, redundant or both. Those examples that have survived are always in danger of losing their distinctive character through neglect. Woods, no longer coppiced, grow shady and species poor. Heaths, ungrazed, revert to secondary woodland. Since the start of the 20th century, most conservationists have agreed that the best way of sustaining nature in England is to try and perpetuate old traditional methods of management in order to maintain examples of these key environments and thus the species associated with them. All this is done by conservation bodies on nature reserves or private landowners in receipt of government subsidies. Recently, however, such approaches have been challenged by the concept of rewilding. That is, the creation of tracts of land in which human influence is minimised or removed altogether. This approach first emerged in the United States and has become highly influential in a variety of forms in Europe uh, and the UK. In England, it's been put into practice at Ennerdale in Cumbria and not a million miles from here on the Nepp estate in Sussex, which had just been left to go wild. It reached a wide audience when popularised by George Monbiot in his book Feral, published in 2013. Rewilding presents a very different approach to nature conservation. Rather than maintaining traditional practices, human intervention is removed, key predators like the lynx reintroduced, and nature allowed to reassert itself. So there are thus different ideas about the West best way of sustaining a future for nature, a future for wildlife in this country. And these debates are important because many conservationists believe we're at something of a turning point. Recent decades have seen catastrophic declines in many key species in the UK. Now, it seems to me that historians have a great deal to contribute to these discussions, and I would, in the time that remains, like to highlight some of the ways in which a historical perspective can assist our colleagues working in ecology and natural history. Firstly, a knowledge of the past not only gives us an awareness of how unnatural everything is, it also allows us to see current environmental threats in perspective and in context, and thus enables us to respond to them more effectively. Ecologists, it must be said, are a gloomy lot. Uh, and they're rightly gloomy about the state of the planet as a whole. Uh, uh, the recent UN report, I mean, it was deeply depressing on climate change. And there's no doubt that we face mounting problems, shortage of resources, climate change, large-scale destruction of habitats, urbanisation. But this said, built into conservation is an inherent concern about change, even though all environments are in a constant state of flux with or without the involvement of humans. Historians, in contrast, work with change. They can help take a more balanced view of it, they're more relaxed about it. And we can show that some aspects of the British environment may actually have improved over the last century or so. For example, if you ask people what has happened to woodland cover in England over the last century, most will say that it is massively declined. It's widely assumed that thousands of acres of woodland have given way to urban development, quarries, intensive agriculture and the rest. But the historian's answer would be more nuanced. Government surveys 
on woodland area, accurate ones, reasonably accurate ones, began in 1895. At that time, only a few counties in the south of England had more than 10% of their area under woodland. 100 years later, it looks like that. Roughly speaking, woodland area has more than doubled from 4.5 to about 9.5 or 10% in the last century. Now, against that, one could say, yes, yeah, some of that's forestry commission plantations, and they're, they're not, not good. Uh, uh, but in fact, most of it is woodland that's regenerated over abandoned common land, heathland, or industrial land. Now, there is a debate to be had about the relative ecological value of different woodlands, but it seems to me we need to get the facts straight first. Woodland, per se, is doing just fine. Dead wood is perhaps a more straightforward example. Now, this is a really important resource, as many of you will know, especially for forms of fungi and invertebrates. But there's incredibly far more dead wood in the environment today, today than in the past when it was gathered on a massive scale for fuel by the local poor, who were regularly prosecuted for stealing it, even from hedges. So many aspects of environmental change have their positive as well as their negative aspects. We might lament the scale at which farmland is currently giving way to suburbia. I certainly do, because I was brought up in Watford in the 1960s. <laughs> wrong time, wrong place. Uh, and I now live in rural Norfolk. But my training as a historian means that I know I have to be careful in assuming that this necessarily equates to a loss of biodiversity. Because I know that both the countryside and the town are highly unnatural environments. A study begun in, the 19, in 1970 by Jennifer Owen of a small suburban garden in Leicester recorded over a 30-year period no less than 2,673 species of flora and fauna, including 54% of Britain's ladybird species, 23% of its bees and 48% of its harvestmen. And this was not a garden specifically designed for wildlife. Now, there are dangers of the shifting baselines and relativism, and let me say again, and unequivocally, at a global scale, things are certainly getting worse in environmental terms. But an historical perspective is essential. If, we're to, if we are to see what is really important, what is really getting worse, and the scale of the change. Now, a second and more important contribution which an historical perspective can make is to make us more aware of the true nature of environmental threats and the particular circumstances which increase our vulnerability to them. Simply because we, as historians, think on long timescales, ecologists tend, with many exceptions, but tend to concentrate on the immediacy of change. Take the mounting concern about threats to tree health in Britain. Dutch elm disease first arrived in the UK in the 1920s, and there was a very bad outbreak then, which many people now forget. But a more virulent strain appeared in the late 1960s, and within a decade, had effectively wiped out elm as a tree. A series of epidemics has followed including Phytophthora remorum, leaf miner and canker in horse chestnut, and more recently, uh, possibly more worryingly, although it's been slightly over-egged, I think, Ash cholera. All <coughs> are caused by invasive organisms, fungi, bacteria or insects, and have thus been seen as a consequence of globalisation, of the long-distance transport of timber and live plant materials, perhaps compounded by climate change. 
But in addition, there are worries that tree health in England is suffering a more general deterioration with the recognition of such complex and diffuse conditions as oak decline, manifested in progressive thinning of the crown and general ill health, leading to gradual death. Many of our hedgerows trees simply look ill. Now, we at the University of East Anglia were approached a few years ago by DEFRA to look into the question of whether this was all new or whether, conversely, our trees have always endured waves of epidemic disease. They also asked us to examine whether there have been any changes in the character of our tree populations or in the ways in which we manage them, manage them which might be making them more susceptible to illness. Now, our answer to the first question, as all this happened before, unfortunately and simply, is no. Before the start of the 20th century, trees often got ill, sometimes in very large numbers, but never on the scale we've seen over the last half century. We concluded that it was not so much the scale of movements of timber and plant materials which were key, because both had, uh, had been imported into Britain for centuries, but rather the speed of movement. By the 1880s, the development of the screw propeller, the compound engine, and the triple expansion engine made transoceanic shipping of bulk cargoes by steam economically feasible. The first large-scale epidemics and, and crossing of continental barriers of disease followed soon after. 1904, oak mildew turns up in England. Two years later, the first European tree diseases turn up in America. But what are the character of our tree populations? How has this changed? And has it increased their susceptibility to disease? Now, we had great fun. We were paid to examine a great pile of documents and maps, correspondence, and above all, timber surveys from the period since about 1600. And we made some quite interesting observations. The first is that the lowland landscape has, at least since the 16th century, been overwhelmingly dominated by just three species, oak, ash, and, until living memory, elm. But just as the species found in woods were the consequence of selection and management, rather than being natural, the same is true of trees outside woods. Many kinds of tree could have been planted or been allowed to grow in hedges or pastures, and many were, but in very small numbers. In different regions, trees like hornbeam or, or black poplar, it's my favourite tree, Maple or aspen occur in various combinations, but alongside the three key species. Oak, ash and elm dominated almost everywhere because of their Catholic habits, good growth rate and usefulness as wood and timber. In addition, uh, this inc incidentally is a, the key to a map, one of many made by a guy called Henry Keemer, uh, an 18th century, mid-18th century East Anglian surveyor, who meticulously plotted the position of, of, uh, of trees and recorded what they were, this rather interesting key. Um, <coughs> he only bothers with oak, ash and elm because nothing else much is there. But he also has a little symbol, looks like a palm tree for a pollard. Uh, and uh, it, up until the early 19th century, there were generally very high densities of trees and very high proportions of pollards. And when by high densities, what I mean is in enclosed districts, there were commonly upwards of 25 trees per hectare on farmland. 
And usually about 80% of them were managed as pollards. And for those who don't know, a pollard is like an aerial coppice. It's coppicing up in the air and done for the same purposes, but mainly probably for fuel. They, 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 it's on a rotation, 8, 10, 12 years, chop it back, and then it grows again. And chop it back, and this is an outgrown but relatively young example. And some of Kima's maps, <clears throat> like some timber surveys, show the hedgerows absolutely packed with trees, standing room only, uh, not, of course, with palm trees, uh, uh, but with, 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 with pollards. It's, it's showing those pollards. So in old enclosed countryside in southern and eastern England particularly, although true of the west as well, less true of the north, there were usually 25, between 25 and 35 farmland trees per hectare, 70 to 90% of which were pollards. The other interesting thing is that the minority of timber trees, trees going for timber, they, like the ones in the woods, are taken down young. They're felled by the time they're 60 years old, uh, partly because nobody likes sawing up a tree before industrial saws come. And 60 years will give you a big enough tree for most construction purposes. Most pollards are actually replaced after two centuries because their cropping rate falls down, is reduced. So what you have up until 1800 and later in some areas is a very different tree population. It's a young, regenerating, vibrant population. It's not full of great, big, tall, spreading trees. It's full of young trees and trees which are a bit older, but because they're regularly cropped, look a bit like lollipops. So it's a, it's a different kind of world. And this world goes. It goes because from the end of the 18th century, improvements in transport infrastructure led to the spread of coal use. Pollarding rapidly declined, pollards were removed, and so the hedges lost a high proportion of their trees. Timber trees remained, but came less intensively managed. This is the scale of loss. This is another of Kima's maps, <coughs> and uh, we can compare it with the first edition six-inch ordnance survey map, which, like Kima, is recording all trees above sampling size. That's what it looks like packed in. That's what it looks like in 1895, the same area. Just a thin scatter. There's 85% loss of trees within 100 years. Um, timber trees remained, but they became less intensively managed as landowners concentrated their forestry activities in woods and plantations. And as a new attitude to trees in the wider countryside developed, with a more general upsurge of, of, of conservationist enthusiasm, maybe the wrong phrase, certainly an appeal for trees as things of beauty. By the end of the 19th century, the felling of prominent timber was being seen by many as a desecration of nature's beauties, rather than as normal good husbandry. All this means that the countryside now contains far more old trees than it did a century or so ago. And it now appears that some illnesses may not really be diseases at all. Oak decline, in particular, only affects middle age or old trees. Few of these existed in the period before the 20th century. Moreover, when farmland trees were intensively managed, they were usually taken down quickly if they looked a bit ill and sold for timber before they lost value through rot. And thus, before they could pass on their infections. Today, diseased trees are more likely to be left standing, either through neglect or to provide dead wood for wildlife. In other words, intensively managed tree populations are much healthier than those left to their own devices. Tree populations in the past were more healthy than those of today. Now, of course, none of this can have much relevance to diseases like ash cholera, which mainly affect young trees. But here, too, a historical perspective is immensely informative. 
The species composition of our rural tree populations, as I've said, has little to do with nature. It was shaped by human choice, by economic factors. We can now make different choices for different reasons, and one obvious one would be to diversify our planting to reduce vulnerability, to increase the number of local minority trees like hornbeam or wild service or small leaf lime to ensure a greater degree of resilience in the face of future epidemics. Now, I used to, I'm sure everyone knows this, as you, as you get older, things that you thought fervently were true are, turn out to be rubbish. And I used to look at scenes like this in Norfolk and think, oh, what a, this beautiful traditional Norfolk landscape is absolutely incredible. It just uh, dominated by oak, smaller number of ash, absolutely perfect. I now look at it and want to stamp across it, vulnerable, vulnerable. All we need is a disease of oak and we have had it. So we need to diversify planting. We need to plant more hornbeam, my second most favourite tree, uh, sycamore in certain contexts, uh, uh, wild surface, surface, even even odd things in parts of West Hertfordshire on the Chiltern Hills, the, the hedgerow trees as well as oak and ash and elm include quite a high proportion of cherry, apple and aspen. So we need to diversify. That's history's lesson, if you like. Now, and what this means, really, is that to understand nature, we need to know about the past, about the management systems that shaped the rural landscape. The more we know, the more effectively can we manage for the future. Now, let me return for a moment to heathland. I noted earlier how heaths were shaped and maintained by grazing. And here they are again, um, the Asbo kids, uh, by, by cutting of stuff for fuel. Uh, but there was actually a lot of variation in, in use because... Uh, the, because heaths were integrated into local economies and farming systems, so that not all heaths were the same. So, for example, uh, in, in some areas, heaths acted as nutrient reservoirs for adjacent areas of arable land, a subject studied by the great historian Eric Kerridge many years ago. And that is, you graze the sheep by day on the heaths, but then you move them down onto the arable by night and pend them in folds, as we can see here. They then tayed the land, land, dunged the land. So there's a constant flow of nutrients. So you're depleting the nutrients quite dramatically. That doesn't happen in all contexts. Some heaths there were more regularly depleted of nutrients than, the, than others. But there were various other uses too. <clears throat> Not all heaths were the same, and a one-size-fit-all um, approach, <clears throat> sorry, therefore doesn't work. My, um, my friend and colleague, the ecologist Paul Dolben, carried out a biodiversity audit of the area called Breckland in East Anglia, still noted for its heaths. He observed that a number of important species, largely restricted to this region, had declined significantly over recent decades. Most of the surviving heaths in the area are maintained by prescriptions laid down by the relevant bodies, maintained by light sheep grazing. So there's a depth of heather, stable, constant grazing. But these key species, in fact, depend on the juxtaposition of areas of stable heather with areas of regular disturbance. And when we first discussed this, I remember saying to him, well, why are you surprised? Until the 19th century, Breckland was characterised by extensive rabbit farms. And as one thing rabbits do, it's disturbed the ground pretty regularly. This, incidentally, is my favourite rabbit. Uh, that, those who can see it, is the killer rabbit of Methwold Warren. <laughs> Oh, I really would not want to meet on the walk back from the pub. Um, 
uh, also in Breckland, many areas were spora- of heathland were sporadically ploughed on a long rotation. Again, disturbing the soil next to areas of stable heather. Uh, this is a group of volunteers and I um, working on Nettishall Heath in Suffolk, uh, where gr- areas were, if you strip areas of the heath, you actually see plough marks underneath. Quite, quite astonishing. It just looks like untouched natural thing underneath the signs of ploughing. So Breckland was an area in which for centuries stable heathland had existed beside areas of regular disturbance. So in other words, traditional management needs to be historically informed. We need to know precisely how habitats were managed, not in some vague way. We need to know quite a lot of detail and how they were thus shaped in the past if we are to manage them effectively into the future. Again, the role of the historian is absolutely crucial. So what of rewilding? an approach to conservation which is fast becoming a popular movement in natural history circles. What is the historian's take on this? The idea of removing and minimising human interference interference over areas of land in order to encourage nature and enhance biodiversity is, as I hope is by now clear, the antithesis of wildlife conservation based on traditional management systems. Not a complete antithesis, but it's pretty sharply different. But it's important to emphasise that little research has really been carried out to demonstrate the superiority of rewilding over other approaches to conservation. Indeed, much of the enthusiasm for rewilding, this is the Nepa state, incidentally, in Sussex again, much of the enthusiasm for rewilding has been based more on emotion, on the call of the wild, than on any very careful assessment of what it actually achieves. In fact, It's arguable, or at least I would argue, that the conversion of the natural landscape, whatever its precise character, to farmland, increased rather than lessened biodiversity, and that agricultural landscapes, at least those managed on traditional lines, provide a greater diversity of habitats and niches at a range of spatial scales than would be afforded by the secondary grazed woodland of rewilded reserves. They certainly sustain the particular species which we think of as part of our common natural inheritance and which have become culturally important to us. Many of which, like those characteristic of meadows, may have actually been rare in the pre-agricultural landscape. Living in a small and crowded island, we need to remember that the highest levels of species diversity are to be found in fine-grained habitat mosaics with an abundance of edges and juxtapositions, each endlessly disturbed and never reaching equilibrium, precisely the kinds of habitats generated by traditional management. It's also important to note that in a small and crowded island, rewilded reserves, complete with reintroduced alpha predators, including, for many would like to reintroduce the wolf, Uh, by definition would be in relatively spatially marginal areas. Rewilding, I should need to say this, will certainly and should certainly have a place in future conservation policies. There are certainly areas which we could greatly benefit by rewilding. But most people experience nature in more domestic settings, in the countryside or on the urban fringe, and this is where most conservation energy should continue to be concentrated. Moreover, the more we emphasise that the natural credentials of, credentials of rewilded reserves, the more we might be encouraging a situation, emerging across much of the globe anyway, in which the landscape actually comprises three sharply contrasting types of habitat. Intensively farmed countryside, urban areas, 
and wilderness, often by definition remote from human habitation. But perhaps more importantly, as historians, we should emphasize that rewilded landscapes do not, cannot closely resemble the natural landscape in the sense of the grazed woodlands which existed in remote prehistory before the advent of farming. To use George Peterkin's terms, future nature would, of necessity, be radically different from past nature. Rewilded reserves would contain a range of animals which were not naturally present in this country, including, as we've seen, both species of rat, the rabbit, grey squirrel, fallow deer, monk jack, seeker species, Chinese water deer, mink, and the rest. They would boast a flora featuring an even greater range of naturalised species such as sycamore, and above all, rhododendron. And rhododendron is a particularly problematic because it's already seriously invasive in upland areas, which are the main areas being targeted for rewilding. There's a danger, in other words, if you really did rewild, if you really left areas of the uplands to do what they liked, you would end up with, with rhododendron thickets 20 miles across. <laughs> And indeed, there's a more important basic point here, I think, from a historical point of view. In an important sense, rewilded reserves would still be cultural landscapes, for the motley array of plants and creatures living within them would represent a dim memory of specifically human actions and desires, ranging from medieval hunting fashions to Victorian gardening fads. They would still have a history. But this in turn raises the question of how far even the landscapes of the Mesolithic, that is, for those who aren't familiar with the jargon, post-glacial but pre-farming, were really natural in the sense of being unshaped by human activities. Given the sheer scale of the impact made by hunter-gatherers on the environment recorded by ethnographers elsewhere in the world, together with the accumulating evidence for such an impact in Britain itself. Since the ice retreated, this country may always have had an ecology which was extensively, fundamentally shaped by man. We might also note that the creation of extensive rewilded reserves would inevitably involve the wholesale disappearance of many elements of the historic landscape. Hedges, traditionally managed woodland, field patterns, landscape parks. What one wonders would Hoskins have made of it all? I'm sure that even the most vociferous rewilders would not want to rewild Howarth Moors, inspiration for Bronte's Wuthering Heights, or, I hope, Dedham Vale, the subject of so many of Constable's paintings. Many would hopefully avoid the better preserved examples of the work of Capability Brown or Humphrey Repton. This is Capability Brown's, one of his finest ever bits of landscape art. This is uh, the Golden Valley Ashridge. I personally would hate to see that scrubbed over, left to its own devices, full of regenerating woodland. I'm sure they would leave these things alone, but in many other contexts, the erasure of all signs of the human past uh, seems to be actively welcomed by some, precisely because it serves to foster the experience of wilderness. And all this marks a significant and worrying shift in the relationship between ecology and history. For in the 20th century, a succession of conservationists and historical ecologists, most notably the great Oliver Rackham, saw the landscape as something which embodies both natural and human history, the two interacting in complex ways. Now, perhaps the really interesting question for the historian is why all this is happening now. Why many conservationists should, at this precise point in history, 
wish to downgrade those approaches to conservation which emphasize the role of man, and which simultaneously value landscape for both, landscapes for both their cultural and their biological characteristics. But that, as they say, is another story, and one which is complex and too long for me to address here. Thank you.